1: Betches Media presents Donald Trump was a, a stain on our country. I am someone's daughter,
2: too. That's what I'm So
0: help me God. Congratulations, Mr. President. The Betches SUP Podcast.
2: Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking.
1: Hello, welcome to the Betches SUP Podcast. I'm Amanda Duberman. I'm Elise Morales. Today, we are here with Dr. Abdul Al sayed He is a physician, epidemiologist, educator, author, speaker, and fellow podcast host, most recently of America Dissected, on Crooked Media, and on your bookshelves, Medicare for All, a citizen's guide. He also has a new newsletter called The Incision, which you can sign up for at incision.substack.com. Welcome.
3: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Really excited to be here with you all.
1: I, um, we're excited to have you. I remember last week we were doing like a regular recording and Elise and I were discussing the topics and she was like, I got to talk about this book. I read about Mm -hmm. Medicare for all. And I was like, wait, 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 I got to make you wait. I think we can have him on to talk about it. So she (laughs) patiently waited, even though she was so eager that day until we could, I was like, I think you're going to want to wait. I did. I, I, like I said, I loved the book
4: and I did have to stop reading it for before bed because I was getting all fired up and just (laughs) getting too angry. (laughs) Um, So I did, before we dive into some of the details, I wanted to kick things off by asking you, you know, what is the state of Medicare for all legislation right now? And how likely do you think we are to see movement on that issue under the current administration?
3: Yeah, well, first, thank you so much for having me. Really excited to be here with you. And I'm sorry for sleepless nights, but um, (laughs) healthcare in America uh, needs changing. And, um, you know, if, if there are more and more of us sort of rolling around asking how do we how do we change it um i think that's a good thing uh, mm-hmm. i really appreciate you also highlighting the book because i think um, the, the the movement for medicare for all we are this odd moment where i think if you are watching um, and keeping score of elections you might look at the 2016 2020 primary and say well there was a pro medicare for all candidate running in 2016 multiple pro medicare for all candidates running in 2020 and we don't have a pro-Medicare-for-all president. Ergo, uh, we are not going to get Medicare-for-all. I-, I just actually think that there is uh, a broader um, scoreboard that we all ought to be watching, which is that uh, the, the the people in our country are, uh, I think, waking up to the fact that um, health care in this country is broken, that uh, there is a real solution that would solve it, um, and that it is a matter of um, continuing to push for a politics that will embrace the dignity and humanity of all of us um, to getting there. Uh, Representative Pramila Jayapal, um, who is uh, the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, um, just reintroduced uh, the Medicare for All Act of 2021 uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, it has more co-sponsors than it has ever had, uh, including um, folks who you wouldn't, you you know, are, are nobody's progressive people like Frank Pallone. Uh, 17-term congressman who is uh, a chair of an extremely powerful committee um, supporting it. And uh, I think this is a function of the fact that we're coming, God willing, out of a pandemic uh, that has taken 550,000 lives and demonstrated our healthcare system uh, to be um, wholly uh, incompetent, to Uh, The challenges that we faced. And so um, I think we have all the momentum that we need. Are we going to get Medicare for all tomorrow? No. Are we going to get it uh, in the Biden uh, administration? Probably not. But are we going to get it? I believe so. And it's a matter of more people picking up um, uh, the conversation and deciding that they're going to be a part of it. And um, and I, I think that that's happening every single day in this country.
4: Absolutely. Yeah. I, um, I just really, I, I connected so much with the way that you explained the fundamentals of Medicare for all in your book. What, what do you think is the most effective way for our our listeners to communicate about this policy to friends and family who don't understand it? Like, let's say, okay, it's like Thanksgiving You've got 5 minutes before Uncle Frank goes from like happy drunk to asleep. What are what's our elevator pitch to him so that he understands the policy?
3: Well, if Uncle Uncle Frank is on Medicare, just ask <laughs> Uncle Frank, um, what was it like to have to go from the insecurity of a system that, you know, has a bunch of premiums and a bunch of deductibles and, you know, if you lose your job you lose it, to a system that you know is going to be there for you? Uh, no matter what happens, like th- that is that security that we want for everybody. If Uncle Frank is not yet of Medicare age, then the point that i make is this. <clears throat> when, if you're so lucky to have private health insurance in this country, the experience of using it sucks. It, it's not great. Um, you know, you have to choose between a bunch of plans that that really on their face make no sense because they're wrapped in a bunch of opaque language that is meant to confuse you, right? What is a deductible? What is a premium? Right. Premium to me is like a kind of ice cream. Like I want premium ice cream. I don't want to pay a premium. If it comes out of my pocket, it's not premium. By definition, <laughs> I don't want it. Right. And um, and y- y- you get to pick between two or three different corporate bureaucracies, all of whom get to gatekeep what doctor uh you're allowed to see. And all of that so that their CEOs can make tens of millions of dollars, literally denying you the health care you already pay for. That's that's their entire business model, right? Mm-hmm. You pay money to get this product called insurance and he's got the word sure in it. So you think it's going to be there for you. (laughs) And, uh, and then you, um, you get sick, you go to the hospital, the doctor, they tell you that you can't get, uh, so-and-so care. You can't see so-and-so doctor. And when you finally get the care you need from a doctor, they let you see they hit you with this thing called a deductible, right? Which, which is basically a paywall for the care you already thought you paid for Mm -hmm. all of that, right? All of that. (laughs) so that they can keep as much of the money you paid for, for healthcare to deliver into a CEO salary. Like, does that make sense? No, I, I just think that that's not the best way to provide people healthcare. And frankly, the fact that we, we, we saw 15 million people get kicked off of their health insurance in the middle of a pandemic. The fact that our hospitals uh, forced nurses and, and, and doctors and, and providers to be wearing garbage bags to care for very sick people and the fact that 550,000 people died, literally one in five people who died of COVID-19 was an American. All of that suggests that we could do better. What is, what is Medicare for all? One single health insurer, that is the federal government, just like Medicare, that insures you the moment you're born, the moment you turn 26, the moment you get married, the moment you get divorced, the moment you get a job, the moment you lose a job, the minute you turn 65, it's there for you, right? Covers Sounds everybody.
1: Nice. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Really and nice. Can you imagine? <laughs> just right? just like like- w- off weightlifting, <laughs> just thinking about it. I'm just thinking I'm- of all, and I'm not the only person. Everyone's thinking of all the shitty jobs they've stayed in for healthcare, of mm-hmm. all the drastic things I had to get partnered with my now fiance way before that, just so I could get on his healthcare. Imagine if just. <laughs> Well,
4: it's funny because actually right before we were hopping on this call, my fiance was on the phone with his insurance company trying to get something covered because it got billed under the wrong this and that. And so now he has to call this person. And it's just, you know, one of the things that struck me from the book is just that one of the things that helps Medicare for all pay for itself is just the elimination of this bureaucracy and all the paperwork and all the time that has to be spent sending the same bill back and forth between two people so that they can categorize it in certain way so that he doesn't pay $5,000. It's just, it makes no sense.
3: It makes no sense. And I I want folks to appreciate that for the insurance companies, this is how they tire you out. Mm -hmm. This is how they get you to pay, right? Because you don't want to make the next phone call. You don't want to have to fight with some insurance bureaucrat, right? Mm -hmm. And, 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 And to step back, the point that you made, is really the right one because we have we have hundreds of insurance companies, thousands of doctors and hospitals, right? And all of them have to figure out how to talk to each other under this crazy system. But if you had one insurer, then all you'd have to have is those thousands of hospitals and doctors knowing how to talk to that one insurer who is the government. And by the way, the CEO doesn't want to make money off of you because it's the government. And, and, <laughs> and so this the, the system, right, has built into it Levels of bureaucracy that don't have to exist, that ultimately exist to figure out how to nickel and dime you to make money for an insurance industry, that doesn't have to exist in the first place. It's like the ultimate middleman
2: scam. Mm-hmm.
1: Your book is obviously called Medicare for All, a Citizen's Guide, and we've been referring to Medicare for All. This has become the dominant refrain as opposed to just hearing more vaguely about universal health care. Was it a conscious choice to just fully endorse the concept of Medicare for All? I feel like that's what our politics is doing. And why do you think that attaching universal health care to Medicare for All is effective at this point in time? As you mentioned, it's very popular. Is that the primary reason?
3: Yeah. So in theory, you could, offer, uh, you could offer universal health coverage without Medicare for all. The problem with that, though, is that you still have this hugely tiered system mm-hmm. that, that has holes in it. It's a difference between saying, you know, do you want uh, a super old quilt that's not quite big enough to cover your whole body? Or do you want one really big felt blanket? right? Yeah. And so if you just sort of think about like your knee versus your elbow, right? If you want to cover your knee and your elbow, you got to make sure under the quilt situation that you don't have holes on any of those parts and that you've got enough quilt to cover yeah. everything versus a felt blanket, you know, your knee, elbow, doesn't matter. It's going to have a piece of felt over it, right? And, um, that's the, that's the, 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 simplicity of the idea of, you know, the jargony term is single payer, one mm-hmm. payer, one insurer, right? We call insurers payers because they're the ones who pay for your healthcare. Yeah. Um, but you, in theory, could have universal health coverage. The other problem with it is this. The insurance corporations in our society are focused on making money. That's, that's what they want to do. And they're going to do whatever they can to pass off as much of the cost of actually providing health care onto you. And so the very conversation of what it means to be insured has changed. In the past, there weren't these things called deductibles, right? The money that you have to pay to get access to the health care dollars you already spent to get health care. Right. that was something that they created right to be able to pass on the 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 pass the buck back on to you and keep their profit margins and so insurance itself right as a matter of the ways that they've you know spiked the cost of healthcare in effect colluding with the providers to keep raising prices doesn't mean the same thing as it used to so in the past they said oh, okay how do we get everybody insured i actually think that's the wrong question because insurance mm-hmm. itself lacks the you know, the, the potent part of it, which is sure, you're not going yeah. to be sure about anything <laughs> yeah. with insurance nowadays.
1: Right. Like the deductible is like now it's just now you just need to go fund me for your deductible. Then we got you. Yeah. Just, just that part.
3: I mean, yes. that's the whole. So the crazy thing is if you go back to like the founding of insurance, the whole point of of the founding of insurance was to protect people not from getting sick, it was to protect people from the financial catastrophes that happened if they got sick. So the first insurance program was an agreement between Baylor University Hospital and a local teachers union in the 1920s. And the idea was you pay us 50 cents uh, a month and we will provide you healthcare when you need it, right? No deductibles, none of these like weird mechanisms to kick you in the ass when you get sick. It was just, you pay us 50 cents a month, we give you healthcare. If you were to take that 50 cents a month, by the way, and and, and put it in today's dollars, Mm -hmm. it'd be $7 a month. Um, premiums ah! are not $7 a month. The average premium is $448 a month, right? And it comes with deductibles and it comes with co-insurance, and it comes with co-pay. So the whole point here was to protect you from the financial shock and the system doesn't do it anymore. Why? Because you, we've created these huge behemoths that are making tens of millions of dollars, right? Uh, uh, for CEOs, literally billions of dollars a quarter. And, and here's the crazy thing. In the midst of the pandemic, as hospitals were, 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 were shutting down left and right, getting inundated and filled up with patients, by the way, 47 hospitals uh, went bankrupt or, or shut down in the, in the midst of the pandemic. Wow. The insurance companies, right? They were making more profit than they'd ever made. Why? Two things. Number one, because the, the highest cost item that they pay for are elective procedures and those all got canceled because of COVID. And second, the people who tended to lose their insurance tended to be the least uh, wealthy people who tend on average to be sicker. And so the amount of uh, money that they had to pay out in what they call medical loss, right, was lower. Mm -hmm. So they made billions of dollars while the American people and hospitals and doctors were getting inundated. Meanwhile, they had the audacity to Lobby for, by the way, $151 million is spent in lobbying, 845 lobbyists, nearly two lobbyists per member of Congress.
1: Oh my God.
3: Yeah. Lobbying for a system where we, the taxpayers, subsidize them to keep people back on their insurance, which they could have done in the first place.
4: And that's why I couldn't read the book before bed, y'all. <laughs> Had to put it down.
3: You know, in the morning, if you if you really want to get get amped up, you can either drink coffee or you can just yeah. read about read about the broken healthcare system. It'll wake you up.
4: <laughs> it definitely will. I can attest to that. Uh, so let's say you know. Our, our listeners have bought your book. They are fired up. They're ready to fight for Medicare for all. What's the best thing that they could do to push the policy forward and get it actually passed into law?
3: I think all of us need to decide that we're going to become organizers. And that's either organizers with a capital O or organizers with a lowercase O. And then let me explain the difference. Organizers with a capital O, there are a lot of amazing organizations. We talk about some of them in the book, people like Social Security Works and Public Citizen and Be a Hero and the Ner- National Nurses United and the SEIU who are fighting to make this a reality. And that means going out and canvassing, knocking on doors or sending text messages or, or, or making phone calls or lobbying your elected officials. Those are all great. But I know a lot of folks are like, yo, I got a lot going on and you know, I, I, I read your book to like wake up in the morning, but like I have other things to do. <laughs> you can still be an organizer. And I'll be honest with you, I think it's more powerful to have a thousand people talking to one person a piece than one person talking to a thousand people. Why? Because that that relationship, right? With your uncle Frank, mm-hmm. that matters. And your uncle Frank m- may not agree with you politically, but he still likes you, right? And he he still he still wants wants he what's does. good for you. He's still going to listen <laughs> to you, right? And so and so taking the time to just talk to your loved ones, your friends and family, your coworkers, your neighbors about the system and what's broken about it and what we can do to fix it. Not in you know, capital Medicare for all, capital and Medicare for all terms, but just getting folks to find themselves in this fight. That was the goal of the book, right? we, we didn't wanna write a political book. Obviously when you're talking about health reform, it's gonna be political, but we wanted to situate people back into this fight so that they could find themselves and say, ah, all of those experiences I get, having to pay this stupid premium every month, having to pay this stupid deductible if I got sick, having to worry about if I lose my insurance, That's all because of this broke ass system and we can solve the system and it would help me deal with my issue today, right? That's what we want for people. And so if you can help them find themselves in the system, that's really important. And I often think, you know, sometimes we get too worried about winning the argument. Don't worry about winning the argument, win the future. And what I mean by that is ask people questions and force them to answer them for themselves. And over time, you'll find that soon enough they're going to find truth because, and truth is truth. And this system, right, is a function of a whole lot of opacity, a whole lot of disinformation, uh, and a whole lot of inertia. And if we can cut through that, that that's how that's how we win Medicare for all.
1: Yeah. You you mentioned um, misinformation. What do you think is, you said it is unfortunately a political issue in this country, but in many others, it's just not at all. Like the concept of, you know, we see every time there's a viral video of like British people reacting to American healthcare, we're still surprised, even though we know this is how it's done in the majority of places. What have you found just in your work or in conversations to be like the most effective um, sort of argument for Medicare for all or um, to sort of undercut? idea that it's just sort of liberal politics. And second to that, I wanted to ask, um, I personally have been thinking a lot about how the vaccine effort, where it's been really well-coordinated. For example, in New York City, it's going pretty well. Um, I'm going today. You just sign up, you go, you get your card. If you have insurance, they tell you. Do you think pointing to that could be a way to show some of our more skeptical relatives, like, hey, remember when you just went and got your vaccine and you signed up and then you left and you didn't get a bill? Or is that not quite what we're going for.
3: No, I think you're on the right track. I actually lived yeah. in the UK for a couple of years during grad school. And um, <clears throat> it's actually, it's fascinating watching those videos because, you know, British people are kind of muted in their uh, responses. <laughs> so, so to see right. them like shock and awe about all of this, you're like, you don't even understand. Like in British, that's like that's like mind blown, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, so so I, I, I point to a couple of things. No, number one is ask people if they like their insurance. And then ask them if they've ever had to use it. And almost all of them, if they, if they have to use it, hate their insurance. Mm-hmm. And if they've never had exactly. to use it, they're like, oh, it's great. And you're like, okay, so this is the choice that they're telling you that they're providing you. But really, like, what choice do you really want? You want to see what doctor uh, you want to see. You want to have a choice uh, in, in, in an honest engagement with your medical care. The people who keep you from doing that are the insurance industry. Could we do better? What would better look like to you? And then have them, have them, have them. Dictated to you. I, I'd want to be mm-hmm. able to see whatever doctor I wanted. I wanted to know that my care is going to get paid for uh, if I got sick. I, I want to know that my family is going to be safe from you know the the costs that can can cripple families. I mean, sixty seven so percent, two thirds of all uh, bankruptcies, personal bankruptcies in the country, are attributable to healthcare. Wow.
2: Um, yeah. And
3: you'll find that they start describing Medicare for all, right? And then and then just be like, all right, there's a name for that. Yeah. Right. It, and, and you need to see this. The other thing that like, I think people need to have in the back of their minds is that normal is a really, really powerful bias. The thing that you see as normal, even if it's terrible, is a powerful bias. And I'll just explain this like, just in, in, in stark terms. One of the scariest moments for a lot of folks who spend a lot of time, you know, 10 years or more in jail is that they get out. They don't want to be in jail, but they also, they've, they've been in a system yeah. that is what has become normal. And so this idea of having to like go back out in the world, it's hard. Stockholm syndrome is the term for this. So like we have a certain Stockholm syndrome for our healthcare system because it's normal, right? It's the evil we know. Um, And you're -hmm. like, well, here's the thing. The one you don't know isn't necessarily evil. That's the thing.
4: Yeah. I, I feel like people are so traumatized into being afraid of losing their health insurance that like... They, when they hear about Medicare for all, their just immediate fear is losing their health insurance. And they don't realize that it's actually gonna give you health insurance because we have been living in such a precarious system for so long.
3: You're absolutely right about that. So the the, the book I wrote before Medicare for all was a book called Healing Politics. And in it, I, I'm an epidemiologist by training. I, I, um, I diagnosed this idea of an epidemic of insecurity and this notion that, we are so profoundly conditioned by the governing consensus over the past 40 years that has had us losing access to the basic means of a dignified life because we've sold them off to corporations that when ever anyone brings up the idea of change we're conditioned to push back right and we have to appreciate that that's like a condition of our civic trauma mm-hmm. not not a norm and 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 so we have to it makes it that much harder to propose real solutions because you don't just have to make the technical argument for the solution. You also have to make the argument against our fear of loss. And that is pretty profound in this country.
1: Yeah, Um, I think the questions like we were gonna ask you the most often cited question is how do you pay for it? But that comes from like a false scarcity mindset. How you pay for it is there's actually plenty of money to pay for it. Let's look at what we don't need to be paying for.
3: Well, it's not only that. It's like, how do we pay for it now? Right. We, right yeah. we, I mean this is a crazy thing. 18 cents of every dollar spent in our economy is spent on healthcare. To put that in perspective, I live like 40 miles from Canada. Everybody in their country has health insurance. They live 2 years longer than we do and they spend 11 cents on their dollar. Right? So we pay for it now. Right? Yeah. Like if we just took the money we had now when we spent on healthcare and spent it more efficiently, we would have money left over right? So like the real question is how the hell do we pay for it now? Well, the, the point is actually for 10% of people, they can't afford it, right? And for everyone else, it's that like acts of Sophocles hanging over your head if you get sick. So right. we've got to push against the bias of this broken normal and help people to see that this normal is extremely abnormal, right? It is, it is, it is not just, it's not equitable, it's not sustainable. And- it's breaking us. And we could be doing so much better if we were willing to actually be thoughtful about how that system ought to be.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. Everybody check out Medicare for All, a citizen's guide. We really appreciate it. And we'll be right back with Dr. Natasha Kathuria to talk about this week's announcement about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. (laughs) Hi everyone, it's Amanda and I'm back as promised with a quick Q&A with a medical doctor regarding the latest announcement about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, how to interpret this news, discuss it with your friends and family, and just communicate the right information with your networks. To help us do that, I am here with Dr. Natasha Katheria. She's an ER doctor, a global health specialist, an epidemiologist, all directly applied to this, who's worked in 11 different countries. So we didn't just get a doctor, we got a doctor. Thank you so much for being here. Yes, of course. Happy to be here. So to jump right in, what is your understanding as a doctor, an experienced medical professional as the basis for the pause in distributing the Johnson & Johnson vaccine?
5: So really what's happened is that the CDC is being extremely stringent with our vaccines. And I think this is an important thing for Americans to realize that, you know, we have the highest standards for healthcare. In the world and this is just another example of us doing our due diligence and taking our utmost caution that we can and so right now there has been a signal that there has been six women um, who have had a a severe blood clot after within two weeks of receiving the johnson and johnson vaccine and you know that that is a signal for us to investigate it doesn't mean that there's causality it doesn't mean the vaccine is causing it and that rate is actually much lower than it is in the general population uh, just normally. So um, it, it's a it's a, low, a low number. You know six out of seven million is quite low, uh, but it is enough. And if we're investigating it at this point, you know that should just give even more reassurance that we're doing our utmost to reassure Americans and hopefully the world that these vaccines are safe before we just you know give these out.
1: So I think the pandemic in the past year has had a lot more people sort of tuning into things like the probability, and maybe they're not as familiar with just the general cost benefit analysis that happens when you're thinking about undertaking a medical treatment or taking a medication. As you said, we don't yet know if there's a correlation between these, but there are some correlations in blood clotting with sort of everyday medications and other common diseases, including COVID. So how high would the risk of developing a blood clot condition with this be compared to other relatively common medications? and having COVID?
5: Yes. So um, really what there's lots of risk factors for blood clots like this. Mm -hmm. So just pregnancy alone increases your risk of a blood clot significantly. Uh, Oral contraceptives, so just birth control pills, um, they significantly increase your risk of a blood clot. Um, And both of these increase your risk of a blood clot significantly higher than the rates that we're seeing uh, with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Um, And another important thing to know is COVID-19 increases your risk dramatically higher. So having COVID-19 can increase your risk of a blood clot about 66 times what the normal risk is. And having the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, based on the numbers we have, that's 0.00009% increased risk in a blood clot. So, you know, taking things into perspective with this is extremely important. Uh, We are being extra cautious because like with any trial, it depends on the amount of people enrolled in the trial. You can have thousands and thousands of people enrolled just like Pfizer and Moderna did, which were phenomenal numbers that really allowed us to get really good data. But no matter what, when you increase that number and you start making thousands, millions, and then millions, multi-millions, which is what we're at now with 7 million people just having this vaccine, you know, we're inevitably going to find extremely rare risks and adverse effects that may come out. Um, Just like with the vaccine trials, you know, we've said a 100% effect against hospitalization and death, Um, you know, eventually that may not be the case. There may be one or two people who get hospitalized or a handful of people who who get severe COVID and do end up needing to be in the ICU, right. that inevitably happens with any medication and with any treatment once mm-hmm. it is given enough in the population. So that's another thing just to consider and understand the true risks and weighing the risk of the vaccine or the risk of COVID-19, which is exponentially greater risk.
1: Right, and and as you mentioned, my sense from what I've read so far is that the pause is used the word a signal, and the pause isn't necessarily pause because we are certain this causes a danger, but to ensure the medical community knows what to look out for, how to treat this, to to ensure to keep patients safe if there is further incidents. Correct? Exactly. It's
5: just to investigate, and honestly, this is very reassuring. In the medical community we're very reassured that you know the cdc and the fda are still um you know they are actively involved and they're still being extremely critical even after the vaccine starts rolling out it's not like right all hands are off deck and it's just a pause to investigate and they're actually going to be meeting today uh, The this right. is going to be meeting to discuss things today so hopefully we'll get more information soon but you know these are just really good measures to show that we're taking yeah. extra caution
1: so these agencies have obviously had to balance being transparent as they have been to maintain trustworthiness and a citizenry that we know is already a little bit hesitant. Balance that with not causing alarm over warnings that would only add to that reluctance. Do you think that the FDA and the CDC have done a good job communicating this pause in the manner that you just described? And if not, or if just an okay, what if what would you have liked to see more of? Or what do you think would have made the reaction to this match um, the reality of, of the danger or lack of danger?
5: I think when it comes to announcing these sort of sorts of things, there's a lot of subjectivity. It's, it's a difficult thing to announce to the public. I think they did the right thing and I think yeah. they made the right decision. You know, I do think that they could have done a, a better job of announcing it, uh, you know, making it more clear before, you know, what inevitably happens is people go crazy on social media and on the media. And then by that point, they're making the announcement and the damage is done. Uh, as you can imagine, yeah. people start having fears that are not based on facts. And once we start chasing ourselves with trying to reverse that, it becomes very difficult. So I do think when, you know, these things happen, it would be nice to see a little bit more aggressive announcements given in the media from the CDC themselves, from the FDA themselves. But they do count on a lot of us who are going on the media on air uh, and, and trying to do our due diligence to really, you know, bring this to the public's attention, as medical professionals, that we understand the risk, we understand what's going on. It's difficult for the layperson to understand that. And so it is right. really in a lot of our hands. And hopefully we're getting the opportunities to do this on air more and more frequently. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a tight rope to walk. It's a very tight rope to walk.
1: Right. Yeah. I think this morning I read that a majority of the headlines, the most popular, most shared on social media headlines about this did not include anything about how rare because rare is just such a spectrum right like it, one in a thousand from birth control i consider that rare and i i my own cost benefit analysis but also one in seven mil, you know six and seven million is so rare so it's such a spectrum that we but we it's such a spectrum that it almost doesn't encompass how rare this one is and i think media is it was not not prepared to communicate that but hopefully is listening to experts like you and and we'll do so more appropriately as we learn more
5: yeah exactly uh, what you just said is exactly i think the 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 feeling it echoes the feeling a lot of us are 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 feeling ourselves it's that yeah. rare even saying extremely rare doesn't resonate with with a person as much as you know you're 10 times more likely to get struck by lightning you know you're more likely to die crossing the street you know the the, the spectrum is so much higher for other things or even yeah. comparing it to other medications and other vaccines that we've had, and we've never had more stringent regulations with a vaccine in the history of the world until now. So I hope that gives some reassurance to you know your listeners that w- there's never been a time in history where we've been more cautious and more transparent, and had such an efficacious vaccine go out. So we are we're being very oh, careful. Yeah. Um, but- you're right. It's about it's about the words we use and it's about how we present those numbers to the public so they can really put it in perspective. Mm-hmm.
1: Finally, as you said, these these headlines are around, and obviously the pause happened for a reason. So for women between 18 and 48 who did recently receive this vaccine and just want to look out for themselves um, as they learn more, what would you recommend they look out for? You do work in an emergency room. I'm sure you see this particular condition. I know it's an assortment of, of clottings that might be happening, but what should people be really alarmed if they start to notice?
5: Yes. So exactly. I've seen this, you know, several times, not from the vaccine, but (laughs) in life because it does happen in the regular world. Um, You know, be cautious of severe headache, uh, you know, blurry vision, sudden onset blurry vision, sudden new onset seizures. If you've never had a seizure before things that usually would trigger someone to go to the ER anyway, Um, you know, sudden weakness on one side of the body sudden confusion You know, if if someone else witnesses someone being confused and what we call altered, uh, you know, mumbling their speech or something like that, inability to walk straight—pretty extreme Um, symptoms. Yes, yes, yes. So so,
1: if you're, if it's affecting you, you'll probably know it won't be a mystery.
5: Exactly. It's not going to. You'll you'll know it's pretty significant when it happens, Um, Mm -hmm. and. That's, but those are the big ones that we look for. It's not just like your normal headache. Uh, we don't want everyone with a headache now thinking that they have a clot in their brain. Right,
1: exactly. Right. This has to be like, I mean, I know migraine sufferers are probably like, how can I tell? It, it's, I think you can even distinguish between a migraine. I've heard it's just like the most intense headache you can imagine.
5: Right. It's going to be noticeably different. If if it okay. feels anything like a prior headache you've had at all, uh, that's not what this is. It's usually- That's a great- for a other things-
1: And finally, obviously, there's a pause, so um, I won't ask you straight up, but do you anticipate once there is a resumption in this, do you anticipate feeling comfortable recommending the Johnson & Johnson vaccine to uh, women?
5: Oh, absolutely. I think once we get, uh, you know, the green light again, I have no doubt, and I have not had any doubt through this whole process, just knowing what goes on behind the scenes, that they're going to do their due diligence to really give us the green light or not in America. You know, we have... Like I said, the highest you know bar to meet for giving vaccines or medications or surgeries than anywhere else in the country or in the world, excuse me. And so, if they give the green light and they give us the true the risks based on these numbers, I, I feel pretty confident. I mean, like I said, you're they're more a woman is more likely to get this just generally based on these mm-hmm. numbers than from the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. So, I'm not uh, you know yeah. I wouldn't withhold it, but I do think that we have to be conscious of these risks and you know, there is a chance that we might have to select vaccines based on age and based on gender. And and that is a decision they'll have to make.
1: Right. So it sounds like we're at a short red light now, but once it turns green, foot on the gas, ready to go.
5: Yeah, exactly.
1: Excellent. I thought I was reassured before, but I feel even more reassured now and armed too with some really good information. And and uh, context for my friends and family. Thank you so much, Dr. Catheria. We really appreciate your time. Of course. Happy to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Until the end of Democracy, I'm Amanda Duperman, and this is the vet to sub podcast.